0: Hi, everybody. This is Charlotte from Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm 43 years old, been in perimenopause for the past two years now. Will my depression eventually ebb or is it here to stay even after menopause? Am I ever going to feel normal again? Welcome to our Perimenopause What the F podcast brought to you by the Peri community. In this podcast, we talk everything, and we mean everything, perimenopause. We navigate through all our what the F perimenopause moments and all, is this normal, questions. We talk with perimenopause experts, thought leaders, and inspirational voices of the community. To connect with other perimenopause warriors, download our free Perry app. You can find the link in our show notes. And now, let's dive right in. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Ellen Fora. I'm a holistic psychiatrist and acupuncturist, yoga teacher, and the author of The Anatomy of Anxiety. And I am so honored to be here tonight with Dr. Judith Joseph. So I'll let Dr. Judith go ahead and introduce herself.
1: Hello, I'm Dr. Judith Joseph. I'm a psychiatrist and a researcher, and I'm excited to work with Ellen Again, and we are going to try and get through as many questions as possible. Thank you for submitting those wonderful questions. And we are just going to make this as collaborative and interactive as possible between Dr. Vora and myself, and then hopefully um, be able to answer even more questions. So we'll start off with some questions from the Perry community. I'm going to ask Dr. Vora some questions, and then she'll ask me some questions, and then hopefully we'll get to more questions. One of the members of the community said, I'm trying to understand what role perimenopause has on my increased anxiety and what to do about it. It's a great question. So Dr. Vora, um, that's the first one for you.
0: Yeah. So that first question is a big one and that could occupy a lot of our time. But just very briefly, I think that the fact is this is a phase of life where there are a lot of potential causes of an increase in anxiety. but The hormonal shifts that are happening with the perimenopausal change and in the postmenopausal years is a, a kind of, how could it not also be impacting our anxiety levels? And it stands to reason our hormones have such a profound impact on our mood, on our anxiety. We know this from every phase of our reproductive life, how powerful our hormones are. So as they're changing, that is, of course, having an impact. And what can we do about that? There's a lot of different ways to think about this, and I think that the way I've always thought about anxiety is I break it down really into two types of anxiety, where the first type is what I think of as physical-based or avoidable anxiety. I sometimes call it false anxiety, where it starts when the body is tipped into some kind of stress response, and it can occur from Seemingly innocuous aspects of our lives, a blood sugar crash, a bad night of sleep, an extra cold brew coffee, a hangover, but also from hormonal changes. And when it comes to this avoidable anxiety, we would do well to identify the root cause, address it on that level, and eliminate unnecessary suffering. So when this is attributable to hormonal changes, that's when I think sort of hormonal supports and hormonal interventions are indicated. And we're gonna get into a lot more about that, but that's when I think of as if we're having an increase, a change in our anxiety levels in these years, we should look at a lot of different potential factors, but one we should absolutely be looking at is hormones. Judith, what do you think about going back and
1: forth? I think that's that's great. I loved how you explained anxiety and that I think for many people, anxiety can look very different for some people. They may experience it in their bodies a lot, so they may have a lot of GI symptoms And that can be very confusing because, you know, you don't know how hormones are playing a role in terms of your GI symptoms. For some people, anxiety can manifest as poor attention. So that can be very confusing because you don't know if it's brain fog or if it's something like ADHD, if you have a history of that. And then for others, sometimes anxiety can be very neurological. And so you can have these symptoms that, are like numbing and tingling in your body or problems with your vision that you don't realize are related to anxiety. So it can be very different depending on the individual. And so learning about the different ways anxiety can manifest is one way to address uh, the issue. Just learning is power in itself.
0: I mentioned two kinds of anxiety and I just described one, which I think of as avoidable anxiety. It's anxiety that doesn't need to be happening and it's caused when something has tipped our body into a stress response, usually some state of physical imbalance. But I think that there is a different type of anxiety, which I call true anxiety. And I think of this as purposeful anxiety. This is not something to pathologize. It's not what's wrong with us. In many ways, true anxiety is what's right with us. When we are able to viscerally connect to what's wrong around us, whether that's in our personal lives, our communities, the world at large. And it it's really our inner compass nudging us, asking us to pay attention and see where something is out of alignment and where we need to course correct. And I think that the perimenopausal, postmenopausal years also come with their fair share of true anxiety. And there's and I'll I'll go into an explanation of this in a little bit, but I think that as our hormones wane, There's a little bit less of this hormonally fueled drive to keep the peace, to play well with others. And in certain ways we can see that as as we, we might feel more irritable, but I think we can reframe that as somewhat liberating. And it's a reckoning when we start to realize, hey, I have needs. I am worthy of getting my needs met. And we start to set boundaries in a different way. So, true anxiety, it can speak to whether we don't have community in our lives, don't have ritual or play or pleasure or wake up with a sense of meaning and purpose and I think this is a phase of life where we also start to really grapple with those questions. but I think it's also an opportunity to really recognize where are we not setting boundaries and really recognizing our energy and our needs as not only something we're worthy of but can really
1: be seen as sacred and you know one of the ways a patient of mine over the years had her anxiety really impacted by hormonal fluctuations was with the with hot flashes so having the physiological sensation triggered panic and the anticipation of am i going to have a hot flash is it going to happen when i'm in the middle of something important can people notice it led to a lot of the catastrophizing which is a Thought distortion about something that's actually very real and very physical and so we don't want to say things like it's in your head because it's actually happening however a part of it is within your control because if you're aware that you have this automatic thought about this physical thing causing something very distressing then you may have worsened symptoms because you already have these thoughts about this very physical thing. So one of the things we do is that we try to challenge that thought a bit and really try to push back on that and try and change the feelings around this thought so that people feel as if they can control some of the outcomes. And that actually does help with the physical symptoms because the mind-body connection is so real. And so if people feel as if they have that mastery and that understanding, it's another way that you can cope with the situation differently.
0: I would love for you to take us a little bit into high-functioning depression. And the
1: question that was phrased is, how do I know if I have high-functioning depression due to perimenopause? So high-functioning depression is not yet recognized by the DSM-5, which is basically the Bible for psychiatry. However, as a researcher in my clinical studies, when we try to fit people neatly into one box and say, do you have these symptoms of depression, such as low mood, irritability, poor concentration, poor sleep, etc.?" there are specific criteria. And are you also experiencing a lack of interest or pleasure or low mood? And are you having an impact in your functioning or distress then you look for criterion for major depressive disorder. But if you don't fit neatly into the box and you have these symptoms, but you're still functioning and still meeting your needs and so forth, they're not clearly in distress, then you don't fit into this neat little ICD-10 coding box that people can bill for or prescribe for. So people experience symptoms of depression and they're pushing through and they're functioning and they're still getting things done and they're still meeting deadlines, but something is off perimenopause is different. Perimenopause is due to hormonal fluctuations. However, sometimes you do, you do see people pushing through and really not being in touch with what their body is going through as a way to cope with the change. And that's something that's a higher level type of coping mechanism called sublimation, where you busy yourself. You don't deal with what's happening. You don't acknowledge the mind-body connection, but that doesn't last very long. Eventually something's gonna give. And so I hear this a lot. Don't a lot of women experience high function depression? A lot of women do because women are naturally multitaskers, right? We're better at that. We also have the added responsibility in many cultures of taking care of children, working, taking care of elderly parents, being caretakers, not thinking about ourselves, putting others first. So I see a lot of vulnerability in midlife because you're so busy caring for others that when you're actually needing support... You've gotten so accustomed to ignoring yourself and your needs that when you're hit with these physiological symptoms and these changes, it can feel as if the rug is pulled out from under you. So it's important before you get into these phases where you're not really able to take a step back and lean on others because you've become the go-to. It's important to realize that this is who you are and start to build community, like Dr. Rora said, start to lean on others, start to open up up to friends, start to talk about your experiences so that you know you're not alone. And that's really the first step is realizing that you're being stretched thin, that, you know, what if, you know, you're not able to continue filling these roles, filling these needs, what will happen? And that's okay. You know, before you took on these roles, you were a person. You had a personality, you had needs, you had wants, you had desires, you had passions. So you don't have to feel so guilty, but a lot of us as women internalize that. And we feel guilty and ashamed when we can't do for others when we can't fill these roles anymore, but we have to think of ourselves. One of the questions that people asked was pertaining to panic attacks. And you know we touched on that a little bit, but I was hoping that you could go into, you know what is a panic attack? And can HRT help? And also, what are some non-medical ways to address panic? Yeah. So panic attack,
0: I really think of it as, in certain ways, a subset of a larger umbrella around anxiety. And it's this discrete episode can last 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of real peak anxiety. And there are a lot of physical symptoms that can go along with it. You can start to have lightheadedness or dizziness, tunnel vision. You can feel like your limbs are tingling, your palms are sweating, your heart is pounding. You can feel that tunnel vision feeling. And sometimes there are thoughts that go along with it. Like I'm having a heart attack or I'm gonna die or I'm gonna go crazy. And it's exquisitely uncomfortable. And I think that there's a lot of different ways to think about panic. I will say this, there are things you can do once you're already in a panic attack. But I I think of myself as, Having an endless supply of suggestions for how do we prevent ourselves from having a panic attack in the first place. But once we're what I call past the point of no return and you're in it, I'm like below average at helping somebody manage that. Different people have things that they feel work for them. It can be splashing cold water on your face, going outside, feeling the cold breeze, sensory input, like putting your hands in something textural, like dried lentils, pushing against a wall, box breathing where you inhale for four hold for two, exhale for four, hold for two. And for one person, one of those things is going to be helpful. For another person, it's going to be counter-therapeutic and, and just kind of, it, it can almost feel like when someone yells at you calm down and that's it can just be actively unhelpful sometimes. So I think that once you're in the panic attack, it's less the time to fix it and more the time to have skills for riding it to remind yourself this is a panic attack, you're safe, you're not dying. And you do, of course, want to rule out cardiovascular issues. You want to make sure that, in fact, these are panic attacks. But once you have that diagnosis, once you know that that's what's going on, to be able to see it almost as an investigative journalist, and rather than see this as a sign of your body breaking, you can really see it as a sign of function this is your body mobilizing in response to a stress response heart pounding breathing rapidly all of that is an appropriate mobilization in the body in response to stress and for me the best approach to panic is to really just think about how to prevent it from happening in the first place and there's a lot of different paths up that mountain within psychotherapeutic modalities cognitive behavioral therapy what's often called cbt is especially helpful for panic. And there's really nice data that shows us that you can work with a CBT therapist or you can even just do a CBT workbook and that can be quite effective. I think that there are medication interventions, we can talk about those. In terms of supplements, I think of it as usually not as effective as we would want it to be. And I think that HRT does have a role in that prevention, in keeping our anxiety levels, almost keeping the threshold in in a more manageable place so that we're less prone to being tipped into panic. Yeah, Judith, I'm curious what you'd
1: add to that. In my research lab, we do an assessment to determine whether or not someone's having a panic attack or, or panic disorder. And the nature by definition of panic is unexpected, right? It's out of the blue. And so like what Dr. Vora was saying, in certain situations, it is unexpected, it is out of the blue, but in other situations, you start to keep a journal and you start to realize, wait, in certain settings, it tends to be triggered more, right? So for some individuals, it's in the work setting. For others, it's only in a hospital setting. For others, it could be in crowds. But by definition, it's out of the blue. And so what are the things that we can control? I mean, can't necessarily control our settings, right? You have to be in the world. Well, what you can control is what you eat. And certain foods in nutritional psychiatry show us that eating omega-3 fatty acid foods, foods that have antioxidants like berries, food that are leafy greens, things that are known to support your neurons and your glial cells, which are the support cells for the brain, those things over time in some clinical studies, six weeks of modified diet can actually support your brain health. So like what Dr. Vora was saying was that the evidence isn't there just yet, but the foods can hold the nutrients that you would typically get in a supplement. And the reason why we all don't just like eat supplements with our dinner at night is because our bodies aren't made to absorb these supplements and utilize them the way that our bodies are made to absorb food and utilize food. So it's important to think about what you're feeding your brain because that can help support your brain health so that you don't have as many symptoms of depression and anxiety. And it can support your sleep, right? Because when your brain cells are healthy, your sleep is better and sleep is restorative for just about anything under the sun, like anxiety and panic. So those are ways that you can support yourself if you're thinking of alternative methods and also movement. So movement can be very, very helpful in helping to get the body to deflate and diffuse some of that tension. Because I mentioned some of the rating scales that we use in research, look at very physical symptoms of anxiety. So if you can move your body in a way that you're getting rid of some of that tension. That's something that's within your control. So you may not be able to control the setting, right? We all gotta go to work. You may not be able to control the fact that there are crowds because this is New York City for us at least. But there are things that are within your control and that can really help to empower you if you're dealing with anxiety that can seem and make you feel like you're out of control and you have no control.
0: So I'm already seeing really great questions in the chat. So let's keep moving through the ones we have from the community that were sent ahead and let's try to cover them all. There's one question for Dr. Joseph that I think is a really great question, which is, does my depression eventually ebb or is it here to stay after menopause? Am I ever gonna feel normal
1: again? That is a great question and I mean, I, I can tell you as a psychiatrist, I've never met anyone who was normal. So if you find someone who is normal, I'd love to have them stop on my lab, right? <laughs> I think that neurotypical and neurodivergence is just like, this is these are hot words because we're learning that we are human beings, we're in this world and we're affected by what's happening in the world. There's something called the biopsychosocial model. Bio is psychology, psycho is the mind, social is what's happening in our society, in our behaviors. All of these things affect us, so we used to think in neuroscience i don't know about you we went to say medical school, right we went to both columbia right in in medical school, and this is not that long ago. We were once told that the brain stops developing at twenty five That is out the window. neuroplasticity tells us that. As long as we're living and breathing, we are capable of change. Our brains are changing. So, when I hear, like, will I always be the same? None of us will ever be the same. We're changing every day. And that gives us hope because today you may be depressed, but tomorrow you may be less depressed. And with my patients, I think about it as, you know, rather than happy as a state right? Because happy can seem so unattainable. Like when I get X, I'll be happy. When this happens, I'll be happy. Rather than thinking about it that way, how do we increase our points of joy today? And in research, this is how drugs get developed. We look at whether or not points are getting higher, lower, or staying the same. And that's how we measure happy. So in the lab, we measure happy with what's happening today? And I encourage my patients to think about it this way. Today may not be a great day, but tomorrow may be better. And how do we increase the points of joy? And it doesn't have to be anything grand and great. It could be the little things that you do. And and Dr. Vora is uh, trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. So she knows that the thought feelings behavior model is what we use in CBT. But a lot of the research is showing that if we modify the behavior, so even if we don't feel like getting out of bed, even if we're anxious, if we change some of those behaviors, like moving when we don't want to move, eating healthy when we don't want to eat healthy, if we can change the behaviors, it actually pushes things in the right direction. We can actually control our feelings and control our thoughts by modifying behaviors. So please, I encourage people to learn about these things because there are things that you can do that are within your control that can change your state of happiness, your state of being.
0: I'll riff on that a little bit too, which is that we were taught, we both did go to Columbia Medical School, and then we had our journey at Columbia Psychiatry Residency. And and i I think that the big part of how we've all come of age and how we've all been taught to think about mental health is that it's a genetic chemical destiny. Basically, it's a genetic chemical imbalance. This is a fixed trait. It's something about us. If we're depressed, if we're anxious, it means that our serotonin is low. We look at it from the neck up. And I think that this is actually a very myopic understanding of mental health. It's not a comprehensive or fully accurate view of what we now really know about mental health. So the list of things that influence our mental well being includes how we're sleeping, how we're feeding ourselves, whether or not we're moving our bodies, the degree to which inflammatory molecules are coursing through our bloodstream Um, certainly our hormones our digestive health but then also more psycho-spiritual factors like if we have community or a sense of meaning and purpose or ritual or we feel like we're being of service if we have play if we have pleasure in our lives even if we have any feeling around if we have a, a spiritual practice which is a more complicated conversation but this is also a determinant of mental well-being and so All this is to say, it's not all in our heads. It's not a genetic chemical destiny. We're not stuck. And I think that things like depression and anxiety, we're taught to think of that as something about us. And I really think what they are are symptoms. They are a communication from the body. And I think of it as communicating one of three main things, some state of physical imbalance, and we can really do something about that easily. Sometimes it's unmetabolized trauma. And sometimes it's a psycho-spiritual unmet need. And once we understand what we're working with, what's influencing how we're manifesting, how we're feeling, then we can work with that. We can address physical imbalance. We can do trauma-focused therapies to bring past traumas to a place of resolution. And we can really think about where do we have unmet needs and how do we start going about getting those needs met?
1: I, lo- I love it. And and you know it reminded me of... a a couple of years ago doing some rotations in other countries and seeing how different things were in other countries where a patient would come in to their GP and they're having this philosophical conversation about spirituality, I'm like, wow, like this, this doctor is looking at the medical things. They went to medical school, but they're also talking about philosophy and the meaning of life and purpose. And when we think about that, you know, those are things that can shift the way our bodies feel. We see this in like end of life care, that when people have positive views at the end of their lives, they actually have pain less. Imagine that. So think about, These things that give you purpose and keep that in mind because you want to be able to be engaging in these behaviors, even when you're feeling as if things are not within your control, like your body changing. Another question, and I love self-care questions, right? Because self-care is a big industry. Someone asked, Dr. Vora, what are the realistic recommendations for making time for self-care, managing symptoms when you have kids?
0: yeah i i love this question and i usually think that it's whatever is currently happening in your life we kind of often want to do the opposite i think that self-care can be an interesting fulcrum sometimes we have not yet recognized our worthiness of saying i get to put boundaries you know if we feel stuck if we feel helpless and victimized in our circumstances and we feel that we are living endlessly in selfless service of others, and we don't know how to close work, we don't know how to get support at home, we don't know how to get a break from everything that weighs on us, then what we actually need to start doing is a lot of boundaries, a lot of saying no, recognizing that we have limitations to our energy and we're allowed to get support and put pauses on things so that we have time for ourselves. If it looks like a bubble bath, great. If it just looks like spaciousness to stare at the wall, also great. There are a lot of different good uses of that time, but it's really important that it's something that actually adds to your life without it feeling like a to-do without it making it feel overwhelming. that now I'm supposed to wake up and do lemon water and I'm supposed to do Gua Sha and then I'm supposed to meditate and do breath work and I have to do yoga and I had. and if we start to think that this is self care, we end up feeling like we're failing at it and getting overwhelmed and frazzled. And so I think it is about boundaries, but then it's something that nourishes us that feels like an exhale to our nervous system not more of the same busyness that characterizes the rest of our lives. And I'll add this, which is that, I mean, I'm sort of squarely in the wellness world and sometimes in the wellness world, self-care becomes almost like another part-time job. And I think it's so important to recognize wellness was never the point. The point was, can we lead our version of a fulfilling life? And sometimes when we are out of balance, when we're unwell, a certain amount of rolling up our sleeves and getting to work and making sure that we're nourishing ourselves and supporting our sleep and addressing inflammation that's necessary so that our physical health is not in the way of our fulfilling lives. If we're unwell, our physical health can get in the way, but then we want to catch it before the self care practices themselves get in the way of our fulfilling lives. So we want to always be looking in a dynamic way for striking the right balance and making sure that we're keeping a light grip on all of this. We're not doing it because somebody told us to do it or they said that this was a good idea, but that it feels like a yes within our own bodies. And I think that's the golden compass is to be able to take that pause and check in. Does your body say yes or does your body say no? Does it feel like ease and openness or contraction and tightness and heaviness? And you want to use that to navigate whether or not this is the right self-care practice for your life.
1: I agree. If self-care feels like work, then we have to go back to the basics and the the hierarchy of needs. Uh, the basic hierarchy puts physiological needs first. That, that's the bottom, right? And then next is safety. So I usually start at the bottom and I say, are your physical, are your physiologic needs being met? And it doesn't have to be medical, I'll ask a simple question like When you have lunch, are you having lunch in front of a computer? Are you chewing your food? What does it taste like? Are you savoring it? You know, those are basic self care things that we kind of overlook. And, you know, are you drinking enough water? The basic things are you giving yourself a rest in the middle of the day? You know, are you feeling connected to people? These are the basics. Are you safe? Do you feel safe? You know, if it's hard to tell people to focus on the commercial aspects of self care if they're not even safe, if they're around toxic individuals. So we want to think about the basics first. Also, the word self care to me does imply a lot of work because a lot of times women are caretakers, so it's just another person to take care of, and self implicates that you're doing it. So. Again, with the basics is, are you leaning on people? Do you have support? You know That could be a part of your self-care plan. Many of us don't ask for help. We've become the person everyone goes to. We're the rock, but you gotta check on your strong friends. We all need a bit of help and support from others. The next question was, should I be taking HRT with antidepressants? I think that's a question for us both because it is a loaded question. And you always want to talk with your prescriber, your doctor, because everyone has a different history. I think the first thing that I encourage patients, my clients to do is make sure that you know your own medical history. So know that what medicines you've taken in the past, I encourage people to be their own like anthropologist, kind of like, you know, the history of your surgeries, you know, the history of your medical conditions, you know, what medicines have helped you, what you've had side effects to what have not helped you. Know your family history if you can, because a lot of times a medicine that helps a family member can be beneficial to you or a medicine that was had an adverse reaction in a family member can lead to an adverse reaction within you. So knowing those things can be very, very helpful and give you a better outcome because your, your treatment team has a clearer sense and be an active part of your treatment team. I love it when, uh, you know, you, my clients are part of the team because I think that, Everyone's invested. Everyone's on the same page. Everyone's working towards the same goal when you use the team approach. So that old model of I'm the doctor, you're the patient that needs to be eradicated. We have to work together. And with regards to hormones, with antidepressants, a lot of the studies that are out there are looking at the early uh, parts of perimenopause and whether or not hormones can actually be beneficial in preventing depressive episodes. Some of the studies suggest that, but later in the later phases of perimenopause may be not as um, helpful. And so you may need to, depending on your situation, utilize things that are antidepressants to help you with a major depressive disorder. But it's important that you do meet criteria and that your doctor is treating a major depressive disorder and not something else. Because there are other things that have depression. Bipolar conditions can look like a major depressive disorder. Other things can travel together, like severe OCD can can sometimes cause depression. So you want to make sure that you're keeping a track of your symptoms and cataloging yourself and being a good historian of your own self, Because that's very helpful for your providers, especially if you end up having a a gynecologist or um, a therapist, and they're all trying to work together to meet uh, your treatment goals.
0: I may just add to that, that the way I think about medication is that it is one of many paths up this mountain to feel good. And for many people, it's a great path, and it can really pull you out of a tough place and... And it, and it can be so life-saving. But I think that our field is to some extent in crisis, partly because our treatments have variable efficacy and partly because there's just been a lack of imagination about the various root causes of mental health conditions. And so if you are one of the people that's tried medication and for whatever reason it hasn't been a satisfactory solution, Maybe it was effective at the beginning and the effect waned. Maybe you have side effects that are difficult to tolerate. Um, Maybe you feel like you've tried everything under the sun and every dosage and nothing has brought you relief. That's a, a population of people I always want to address. And I think you can start to despair and feel like this is a genetic chemical imbalance treated with a pill, but the pill didn't work for you. So you start to feel hopeless. That's where it's so important to realize that was just one path up the mountain. Therapy is another path up the mountain, but there is a wide range of other paths. And sometimes if the depression or the anxiety is related to inadequate sleep over a chronic basis or a vitamin B12 deficiency or a folate deficiency or inflammation or hormonal issues or something going on with the GI tract, then often medication might be barking up the wrong tree and it might not get you where you need to get. So it's really important to recognize there are these other routes for supporting the brain to alleviate depression and anxiety at the root, and then I think it's a really important message for anyone who's feeling discouraged about medication. And this is not to stigmatize medication. So if it's helpful for you, this is wonderful. We count this as a victory. And in the event that it's not helpful for you, I just want you to know
1: you're never stuck
0: and there are so many other options for supporting your mental health.
1: And there's like, there are new medications. There are. Things like ketamine that I use all the time in my practice. There are new studies looking at psychedelics. This is exciting because we're learning that there are different options. A lot of people say, you know what, antidepressants really never work. Some people say antidepressants saved me. You know, like it it depends. And that's why it's important to keep track of the things that you tried or didn't try and what worked and why, why they didn't work. Because it could have been that during that time, you weren't getting an adequate dose. Or it was interacting with something else, there are many different reasons. And there are so many different types of medicines, right? So when you say, oh, antidepressants didn't work, sometimes people say that and they've only tried one or two. But then other times they've tried many more, right? They've tried every single class and every single type of neurotransmitter. So it's important to really know what works. And there are different types of therapy. We we use the word therapy a lot, but there are many modalities. There's dialectical behavioral therapy, which I think for a lot of my clients is a game changer. It helps with a lot of the interpersonal conflicts, the mood dysregulation, um, some of that identity loss that people sometimes feel. It can really help because there are mindfulness components to it and practical skills that really help with a lot of emotions that can be very distressing. Um, And that's one type of therapy. We mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy, but there are Other type of trauma-focused therapies, one thing we don't talk about enough is the history of trauma. People who have a history of trauma have a higher degree of more distressing symptoms in perimenopause having to do with mood. So if you are aware of your history of trauma, you may want to discuss that with your provider because there are different types of therapies to address trauma, like EMDR, trauma-focused therapy, CPT. So you you want to know about all of the different types of modalities. Brain fog is one that... um, can be very distressing because it can lead you to feel as if you're losing your sense of self. Because the things that you used to do that you were the go-to for, you feel as if you can't do as well as as you did before. And as a someone who treats ADHD a lot in my pediatric patients, I use something called organizational skills therapy, which is really like we had to bring out the old school books on that because the stimulant crisis has caused us to lean on the old therapies. But that's actually very effective in conditions where there's uh, executive functioning issues. So things like decluttering using filing systems, using planning systems, using things like a launch pad where you put things in one part of the house, using methods like time management where you're waking up a little earlier and getting things done during quieter hours. These are the old school methods that we're bringing back and we're finding that they're helpful in in things like brain fog, as well as things like mild cognitive impairment and dementia. So we're using all of these very practical behavioral therapies to help Conditions that we used to treat with medicines only, so again, you know we're learning so many new things, and there are many options so when you feel as if you tried everything, really ask your doctor about other methodologies because um we're always learning new things in this field.
0: I want to add a little bit about psychedelics and also about brain fog, and then we're going to get to the final questions. So I think just in case psychedelics are on anyone's radar, if you're feeling curious about it, I really do think of this as a promising new line in psychiatry. Currently, ketamine is it's legal. It's still being used off label in psychiatric indications, but this is a really good option. There are parts of the world where there are other psychedelics available legally. But there's, I think, something so interesting about how they work. And part of how we think that they work rhymes with our current treatments. They're active at our 5-HT2A serotonin receptors in the brain. They promote neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, which the translation to English is that our brains can grow and change and adapt. We can break out of certain entrenched patterns of thinking. There's a lot of other mechanisms. There's increased connectivity through the brain, quieting the default mode network, which in certain ways pulls us out of the way we can be stuck future tripping or dwelling on the past, and we can arrive at the present moment and even feel more of a connection with others with less of a feeling of this narrow definition of the self. But I think what's most interesting uh, as a mechanism of action with psychedelics is something called the mystical experience hypothesis, which is the one that tells us that the degree to which you have a peak spiritual life experience in a psychedelic experience, it's correlative with the antidepressant effect, which is so interesting. This is different than serotonin. This is basically saying that if you have an experience of awe or transcendence, or it changes your worldview or your outlook, this has an enduring and effective antidepressant effect. And I think that that's um, such a fundamental paradigm shift from how we're currently treating depression and really recognizing the role of our outlook, our worldview, whether or not we see this universe as fundamentally senseless and random or full of love and magical. And I think that these are interesting ideas to explore and it's just worth living those questions a bit. Hopping to brain fog for a moment. There's a lot that plays a role in brain fog of the perimenopausal and postmenopausal years. And certainly it's a direct hormonal effect on the brain. But I think in addition to that, sleep, being impacted during perimenopause and postmenopausal years is also a route to contributing to brain fog if you are having compromised sleep and struggling with brain fog i really like as an entry point to supporting the brain fog is supporting sleep and perimenopausal sleep can be a struggle and there's sometimes things that we're just not able to fix but there's so much that we can do with holistic supports to improve sleep quality And the place I like to start with my patients is actually around light, all things light exposure, because our circadian rhythm or our sleep-wake cycle is primarily influenced by light. And it is something that we have very topsy-turvy in our modern world. If you think about the proverbial savanna of human evolution, that system was foolproof. We were seeing bright daylight during the day and then at night we could see fire and moonlight but otherwise we were getting a strong signal of darkness. And this cued a whole symphony of hormones making us feel awake during the day and tired at night. And then we harnessed electricity and we had the light bulb and now we have Netflix and nobody can sleep anymore. So being strategic about the light that's getting in through your eyes and then communicating to our internal clock in our brain is a really good way to support sleep. And that starts first thing in the morning, just making sure somehow, some way, you're getting actual sunshine into your actual eyeballs as early in the morning as is reasonable for your life. And then in the evening, ideally we're not seeing artificial light after sunset. That's not always realistic. And so if you're not ready to fully move off the grid and raise chickens, then I think a really nice harm reduction strategy is blue blocking glasses and Just owning a pair of these to be able to put them on in the evening, whether you put them on just the last half an hour before bed, or if you get ones that look like normal glasses and wear them from sunset until bedtime, all of this can be really helpful in protecting our ability to secrete melatonin so we can still get tired at night.
1: I'm glad that you brought up the sleep issue with regards to how much we're learning about light. And light can be our best friend or our worst enemy. And light is important because we're learning that it changes the way that our body holds on and stores fat. And we know that metabolism changes in midlife. So it's harder to get rid of certain types of fat during midlife because of hormonal changes, but we're also more sensitive. If we get too much like ambient light exposure during our sleep, that actually causes us to hold on to fat more. And, you know, the typical sleep apnea, which is like, you're not getting enough of the amount of oxygen, you're not breathing in patterns that are healthy to get the deeper states of sleep, the more restorative states of sleep, that's impacted by fat distribution as well. So there are so many reasons to think about light as being your enemy at nighttime, but light is your friend in the morning. So you want to get that light when you're waking up, because that can help to reset that uh, circadian rhythm appropriately. So really, try to learn as much about light. And we're talking about self-care before one of the simple self-care hacks that I like to invest in personally, and also with my private patients is creating the most cozy sleep done. And I I've gotten really into this over the years when I was a medical student and living on a very small uh, salary in New York city, I had the cheapest sheets, Right, like I didn't even care about what I was wearing to go to sleep. Now I'm all about my nice sheets, the soft pajamas. I don't, I don't get too hot when I sleep because the temperatures affect your ability to sleep deeper. Um, I, I really get into my sleep game, and I think that that's a nice place to invest in terms of your self care. Like really be intentional about setting up your sleep space because sleep is so important as you get older sleep can affect the way that you think, how quickly you process and problem solve your irritability states. It just really changes everything, even in the way that you are getting older and aging. So sleep can impact your longevity. It's really something that we all do, right? We all need sleep. And Dr. Bora can speak to this when we're at Columbia Medical Students, we used to brag about who could pull the most all-nighters. I don't brag about that anymore. I brag about how much sleep I can get, how early I can get to bed, right? Um, And it it may be difficult in terms of setting the time that you wake up, but the time that you go to bed can be a game changer. So getting to bed a bit earlier and then starting your day a little earlier. And then uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia um, in, in many studies is shown to be more effective. Than medication. So, you know, another thing that's changed since I was in medical school, right? We were taught that Ambien was great. And then Lunesta came out and it's like, we're learning that, you know what, CBTI is more effective than those things. So, you know, learning how to challenge these negative thoughts and fears around sleep and anxieties around sleep can change the way that we sleep and the quality of our sleep. And there are apps. I believe that the VA, which is um, a government system offers a free app for CBTI. It's not a quick fix, right? You have to stick to it and follow it, but it works and it's effective. So that, that's something that you can utilize as well.
0: I'll add just, I feel I would be remiss if I didn't mention, I think that alcohol is worth just being intentional about when it comes to protecting our sleep. And we think of alcohol as you know a nightcap that it makes it easier to fall asleep. And in many ways it does make it easier to lose consciousness, but it does also disrupt sleep architecture. So this is not restful restorative sleep in the same way and i think that there's a really important aspect of alcohol part of the reason we like it is that it rushes the brain with a particular neurotransmitter called gaba and it's a very calming neurotransmitter but our brain doesn't really care whether or not we're calm it's primarily tasked with preserving our survival and when it sees all of that gaba a homeostatic drive kicks in to keep us safe and it basically thinks if a leopard were to come around the corner we'd be too buzzed to care, and we could potentially be in danger. So it converts the GABA to a different neurotransmitter called glutamate. And glutamate is an excitatory, agitating neurotransmitter. And I think this accounts for why, if we've had a few drinks at dinner, often we will wake up at two or three in the morning, heart racing, thoughts racing, and then we proceed to toss and turn for the remainder of the night. And then the next day we feel more prone to anxiety and depression and brain fog, and we're tired and dragging ourselves through the day. And this really starts with sometimes our choices around alcohol the night before. This is not a reason necessarily to forego alcohol altogether. It's just that we get to inform our choices with this information and one night it's worth it. Perhaps it's the act of self-love is to have the glass of wine and another night we might think, I don't want to squander my sleep tonight. I'm going to have the seltzer instead. So we just want to be making those choices eyes wide open.
1: And and also the one thing about sleep and, and alcohol, like limit the caffeine because the caffeine is the crutch for many. I've noticed that as I got older, I can't, I have to limit the caffeine and I just, the alcohol is a no-go.
0: Let me talk on one other thing that's come up, is anxiety hereditary, is this genetic. And I think that this is an easy one to just quickly address, which is that sometimes um, there certainly can be a genetic predisposition for anxiety. I think that genetics is never as cut and dry as we think it is. There's epigenetic phenomena, which is to say that environmental factors influence whether or not our genes are going to be expressed. And this actually goes all the way back even to the conditions of our maternal grandmother's womb, because we were in certain ways, a follicle in the ovaries of our mom when she was in when she was gestating in our maternal grandmother's womb. So environmental influence is happening then. We're influencing the DNA that is directly part of our bodies today. All of this is to say nothing is really set in stone and we change, our bodies are dynamic, even our genes are dynamic and they're in a relationship with the environment. And that can feel like a little bit of pressure or a downer, but I want it to feel empowering. That even nourishing ourselves, protecting our sleep, changing our outlook, spending time in nature, community—all of this can also positively influence, and that that creates a very different environmental signal to our genes. But certainly, anxiety can be genetic; it can have a genetic basis, and also there's a lot that's modeled, and so it can look genetic, but it's the household we're raised in. We're seeing anxieties. Habits modeled for us. And then that's going to influence our childhood, which in turn influences how likely we are to manifest anxiety later in life. But I prefer to always focus on the parts that we can do something about, where we can feel hopeful, where we can feel empowered. We have so much more agency over our mental health than we sometimes realize.
1: Also, with uh, genetics, um, you know, like the reason that we come up with these genetic models is because when you look at the twin studies, and say that you have identical twins and you look at correlations of but things like depression, and then you look at fraternal twins. So technically they're, you know, they have the same parents, but identical twins have identical genetics. Fraternal twin, twins don't, right? It's 50, about 50% genetic. So what you're seeing are higher correlations in the identical twin studies of conditions, including depression, but it's not a hundred percent. So I say that because it's very tempting to look at the higher correlation and ignore the fact that it's not a hundred percent. And that says a lot. That means that even if you have identical genetics to someone, you don't have an identical outcome. So I think that's very powerful, right? So, and, and like Dr. Vora said, epigenetics, the way that our genes are expressed and interact in our bodies, plays a role. is happening in our environment where we eat, our inflammatory states, our level of stress. So the things that are within our control can actually change our DNA. And I think that's mind-blowing. I, maybe, maybe I'm just a science geek, but I think that that's powerful, right? So, you know, think about that. You have the power to change the way that your DNA operates. So, so when you're feeling that things are out of control, just say, I have, I have that power. And so these little things that you do can really shift the way that you feel. And you may not be able to control everything, right? None of us can, but there are some things that are within our control. But we do look for family history. And what I encourage my clients my patients to do is to draw a tree and sometimes we do it with the trauma tree for for intergenerational trauma because sometimes we don't realize that our grandparents were behaving in ways that affected us right i do a lot of work on scarcity trauma like if you came from an immigrant household like i did you may be behaving in ways that just don't make sense like why are you saving those coupons throw them away you know so there are things that you want to look at in your history and their behaviors but also in terms of your genetics because it may make you more vulnerable but knowing that means that that's another thing you can't control. I know that this is something I may be more more vulnerable about. So let me try and mitigate the risk factors. Let me try to decrease other things that can bring these stressors on to worsen my outcome. And um, so it depends on the perspective and the way you look at it.
0: And so I would love to hear your thoughts on communicating this to doctors, to family members. When you have someone who's uninformed and this is such a pressing, urgent issue, how do you communicate it?
1: It's a very good question, and um, the uh, the study that came out in 2019 showed that I believe only like 58% of doctors who had just finished medical school who were in training in fields that primarily took care of women, only about 58% had up to one course in menopause in their post-medical school training, and only 6.8% felt that they could properly manage perimenopausal women. That's scary right? And it's not that doctors don't care. It's not that they don't want to be good doctors. There there were inherent issues with the way that the curriculum addressed certain conditions in women, and and menopause is one of those. So knowing that is super helpful, right? So when you go to a doctor and they don't know, and you end up feeling powerless, well, that's projection, right? They're projecting onto you how they feel because, well, they don't know. Uh, Did you talk to your GYN? You go to your GYN, they don't know. Because even the GYNs in the study had the same training statistics. So knowing that doctors may not know prepares you to start learning about things because you may have to take things to your doctor. And it's not ideal and it's not right, but you know, let, this is the way that, that things are right now. But knowing it can be very helpful. So that's why you may want to get connected with organizations that specify certain providers who are competent, who have taken that extra step after training to get competency in treating menopausal, perimenopausal women in uh, HRT and just understanding some of the ways that symptoms may present that other doctors don't know. But knowing those statistics is very, very helpful.
0: So, there's so much I want to say on all of this, but I also recognize we're at the end of time. There's one question here I want to just touch on very briefly. The question in the chat, do you have any tools for some help during extreme cycle shifts causing anxiety? For example, a couple of days before my period starts, I get debilitating anxiety. Doctor diagnosed as PMDD and perimenopause, but didn't have any solutions to manage symptoms. When doctors don't have solutions, we need to take it to these other platforms, right? Because there's always things that we can do to support ourselves. And when I'm working with someone with PMDD, um, I'm thinking about this in a lot of different ways, but I'm basically trying to balance hormones such that these shifts in the cycle are not so pronounced and so extreme. And a couple things that have been helpful for patients in my practice. One is actually seed cycling. And I believe this has a bit of an Ayurvedic basis, but it's using particular kinds of seeds to balance the hormones through the cycle. So what that means is that in the follicular phase or the first two weeks of the cycle, to take a tablespoon each every day of pumpkin seeds and flax seeds. And flax seeds, you can't just take straight, you have to ground them. So Um, usually adding them to a smoothie and then in the luteal phase or after ovulation in those second two weeks of the cycle taking a spoonful each every day of sesame seeds and sunflower seeds and we we sometimes poo-poo the fact that nutrition can play a role in our mental health but I cannot tell you how many patients I've had who have found this to be life-saving So something as simple as and safe as seeds every morning can help them keep their hormones quite a bit more balanced and less severe crashes in mood right before their period. Other things that I feel are supportive are being aware of everything that is falsely elevating our estrogen levels from the environment. So these are the xenoestrogens or exogenous sources of estrogen everything from our endocrine disrupting, personal care products and makeup and perfume and cleaning products, all the way to exposure to certain pesticides and plastics. And easier said than done, it can feel very overwhelming to think about all of these exposures in the environment. There's no need to do this all at once, but any small adjustments we can make as we run out of a product for our cleaning our home, we swap in a more natural product. As we run out of makeup, we swap in something a little bit with cleaner ingredients, less likely to have an endocrine disrupting effect. This can be helpful. And on the other side, that's sort of what's influencing estrogen in our bodies. Progesterone is this unsung hero of keeping our hormones in balance. And that really has to do with deep rest, managing stress, which often for many of us means saying no more and then nutrition. And I think that We've really had the nutrition world do us a disservice by telling us to avoid certain foods that have now made it very hard for our bodies to manufacture adequate progesterone amounts. So this has to do with eating nutrient dense foods, eating healthy fats, um, not necessarily eschewing dietary cholesterol. And so it's a more complicated discussion, but really thinking about how to deeply nourish the body, create more rest, a little bit less exposure to endocrine disruptors, and some seed cycling can go a long way to making those PMDD mood crashes so
1: much less. Yeah. I think that's a very thorough analysis. Well, thank you for your questions. I think that um, this was a really helpful discussion, and you, you all covered a lot of topics that I think people wonder about. I think that having the sense of community and and showing that you know, you're not alone is so powerful in itself. So I really appreciate the questions, and thank you, Dr. Vora for your expertise and your um, education.
0: Uh, Thank you, Dr. Joseph, for your expertise. And thank you all so much for your questions and for being here. I hope we were able to cover your questions. And perhaps we'll do this again one day.
1: But thank you all. I hope it's been helpful.